Today our scripture reading comes to us from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you would like to follow along with me, you may do so in your pew Bible or on the screens behind me. Uh, You'll find it on page 704, uh, again in your pew Bible. We're going to be reading Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. God's Word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. God's word for God's people. Good morning. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor here. Now, there's laughing. I I used that same line before I took the sabbatical, but in the last three months, I've been on a sabbatical, so I'm introducing, reintroducing myself to people who've been going here for a long time. Now, you might be wondering what is a sabbatical, and I wish I got one at my job. Well, let me first of all thank the elders who made that possible. After being here uh, for 11 years, I uh, needed a break. I needed an opportunity to rest, and they uh, did that. I also want to thank the staff, and particularly uh, Dan and Isaac and uh, Greg and Zach for uh, standing in the, uh, in the gap, literally standing where I am standing now and uh, giving us the word all summer. And, and so that made it all possible. And so I want to thank them as well. And I want to thank you that you had the patience uh, to allow your pastor to have that kind of rest. And, and rest simply was from the weekly work of producing a message on Sunday and all the meetings that go between that time. And just breaking that pattern gives tremendous amount of rest. It wasn't that every day I got a nap because that wasn't true. It doesn't mean that I go hibernate for three months, but it was rest from the normal uh, work that I do uh, that you don't always see. But there was also recreation, an opportunity to enjoy some things if and some freedoms that you don't have when you have 
a lot of responsibilities. And so uh, the first thing is Kathy and I uh, got on a plane and, and went to see my daughter, Sarah, and her husband, Josh, who live in San Francisco area. And we spent a week uh, with them. And we went to Yosemite before the fires uh, caused everyone to have to leave the park. Then we came back and got on a plane and we uh, went to uh, Switzerland, France, Germany, and finished in Amsterdam for a couple of weeks. And that was glorious because I talked to all the people that were with me to get in a car and drive from the eastern side of Switzerland to Geneva on the western side just to see a chair. It's an important chair. It was a chair in which John Calvin sat in for years. And it's all that they really have of John Calvin's time in St. Peter's Church there in Geneva. I thought about sitting in it, but I thought I couldn't get out of Switzerland. After I did, it looked pretty frail. Asu, Kathy and I spent a week with her dad who lives down in Florida and uh, enjoyed our time with him, but not with the heat. We came back and spent some time, went the other direction to Long Island and really enjoyed uh, a week in Long Island. But also there was a lot of reading and, and I like to do that. That's very restful for me. I have three friends who are brand new authors who gave me their books, but I didn't have time to read them during the year. So I read them and um, I'll tell you more about them eventually, but they're really uh, good books. But I, I didn't just read heavy books. I read some really good light ones, uh, three spy novels and a, and a book on Dodger pitching. If you want a great read, that's it. Highlight of the summer. Uh, but one of the books I did want to tell you about, because I'd like you to read it, I'd like us to discuss it. Um, I didn't read it for you, I read it for me, but I, I found it so good. Rosera uh, Butterfield was a professor at Columbia University in women's studies, and she's written two books. She came to Christ in a very unique way, and so she writes a book about hospitality as a bridge between Christians and people who don't follow Christ. As the church becomes more and more marginalized in our culture, it's becoming more and more difficult for us to have conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And this book is on hospitality as that bridge, and she calls it, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And uh, we'll find a way for you to order it. If you like it on Kindle, you can get it on Amazon pretty cheap and and whatnot. But what I'm hoping is by the end of October, a couple of our Sunday school classes would host us so that we could have a discussion about that book and what we learned. And so if you'll get it here in, in September and we'll f- find a way to make it available to you to buy, but also to read it by then, and then we can get together for a discussion. But as I was talking to Lori before going to this last section of my sabbatical, Lori Nelson was saying that hospitality is so crucial to what we do here on Sunday morning. In fact, you told us that in the survey we did about three years ago that we needed to get better at hospitality. One of the ways in which we do that here at EP on Sunday morning is we created an environment that people can slow down, have a cup of coffee, and have a conversation. Well, we need people to uh, serve in that capacity, to come here a little earlier and help prepare Uh, the stuff that goes on on Sunday morning, particularly having the coffee ready. It doesn't take a a particularly great set of of skills, just a willing heart. And obviously, nobody's asking you to do it every week. But if there are 
you know, four or five people, we could cover it each week. If you let Lori Nelson know that, that would be great to have that. The last part was the reflecting. And I did that in a uh, kind of a compact week time. And I'll share a little more about the lessons I learned about it, primarily looking back at the last 10 years and then try to look forward to the next uh, 10 years, some things that I might want to do differently. But this morning, we are looking at the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, the son of David. He's a king. He's wise. And and the book of Ecclesiastes is said to be a book about life and faith. And what I would like to do with the second chapter, because that's the theme of the second chapter, is to look at our work in light of what Solomon has to say about work. That is, tomorrow is Labor Day, and it's a time in which we celebrate our labors and take a rest from our labors and to reflect upon our work. And so, in anticipation of tomorrow, I'd like us to do that, to just take a moment this morning and let Solomon, the Lord, speak through Solomon to us about our work. And you might be saying that, I don't have a job. I'm retired. Okay. You retire from a job, but you never retire from work because you were created in the image of God and therefore you're always working toward his purposes, toward his glory. And so even if you don't get up at at seven in the morning to get to work and you have an employer and in that, you still work and you will work, you will labor not just until you draw your last breath. But I believe Revelation will show you, and I, when we went through it, sh- tried to show you that you will labor forevermore because our God is a worker and he has not stopped working. He is always, if nothing else, holding everything together by the word of his mouth and the sovereignty of his care. You might be saying, well, I'm a student. I I don't work yet. That was the excuse my kids had. But you work too. If you're a student, your job, your work is your school, your studies, your labors. You get wages. They come in grades. And so for many of you, on Tuesday, it starts. And for many college students who have already left here, their work has already begun. And you parents, you want them so much to take this seriously. Well, you telling them is not going to work. But you can show them that that's how God sees what they do, as work. And you might be saying, but, but I'm, a, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I care for my home. I care for my family. That's work. That is your work. And so God is through Solomon, speaking to all of us, even those of us who are in ministry and whom people think we only work half a day on Sundays. It's all our labors, our work together. And so in light of that, let's prepare and I'll pray. Father, help us to understand what we hear. Help us to believe what we understand And help us obey what we believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon, 
who is David's son, becomes, by any human estimation and evaluation, one of the most successful human beings who has ever lived on the face of this planet. Even Solomon recognizes that. Listen to how he described This is the paragraph before the paragraph that Dave uh, read to you just a little earlier. This is verse 4. I made great works. You hear him? I'm going to talk about all that I have accomplished. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, all my work. And this was my reward for all my toil. How did Solomon feel about all that success? Verse 17 says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 20 says, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 23, let me put it in first person. For all my days are full of sorrow and my work is a vexation. Even in the night, my heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Do you hear what he's saying? Vexation literally means the state of being frustrated. It's the state of being annoyed. It's the state of worry. Here we have one of the most wildly successful people in human history. One who had achieved all of his dreams is frustrated, worried, and annoyed at work his work. Yesterday, our nation buried Aretha Franklin. Today, our nation will bury John McCain. Two wildly successful human beings by our standards, our human standards. One had so many great hits that many of us in the room can sing some of her songs. And if you watch just a a little bit of her memorial service, they seem to try to sing them all. What we forget about Aretha Franklin is that she became so glorious, so wonderful, so successful in the 50s and 60s and early 70s as a woman when women did not succeed in our nation. But she didn't just succeed as a woman in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, but but as an African-American woman. She literally could sing in Carnegie Hall and some of the great places of the world, but then she could not stay in the great hotels of this world. She could not eat in the great restaurants. She knew frustration of her work. 
that no matter how much recognition, no matter how much glory Aretha Franklin could get, she still had to go to black-only restaurants. John McCain, uh, we've almost reinvented him this week. Senator McCain, uh, we, as we all know, his biography is all over the, both the internet and television. Five years in a prison of war camp in Vietnam and, and then comes back and after a while he becomes the senator for over 30 years to the state of Arizona What people don't remember is he's one of the Keating Five, a scandal that was with him for decades. A lot of people don't remember that he ran for president twice and lost both times to people that he thought in both cases were inferior to his position And I find it ironic that this week that in his planning of his own funeral, he wants to show the unity between the two sides, that it is possible, but we all know that as soon as the September break is over, the two sides will return to fighting. Frustrating, annoying, and worrisome. This is what Solomon says. It's all vanity. It's all like chasing after the wind. Tennessee Williams, a playwright, said, this is the catastrophe of success. And so just let me answer two questions before we go to the Lord's Supper. What's the source of that frustration? And and what's the solution to it? The source of our frustration is that if I can use this metaphor of an umbilical cord that is attached to us, we plug it into other things that we expect will give us life and meaning and purpose and hope and success. We draw life from them, our careers, the pursuit of our success and the accrual of our resumes. Whatever our souls most deeply crave, And Solomon says, if you do that, it's all a striving after the wind. It's all vanity. According to the New York Times, Amazon is one of the most driven cultures in the United States today. It produces incredible high expectations for their employees, and they reward them with long hours. The New York Times did some interviews among current and former employees of Amazon, and this is what they asked. Why would you stay in a culture, an environment like that, like Amazon? And one responded, I was so addicted to the idea of being successful at Amazon, it was like a drug that we could get our worth from. I want this morning to let you hear Solomon identify four drugs that we take, that we plug our umbilical cords into and draw our lives from. And the first one is recognition. Listen to Solomon again. Verse 18, I hated all my work in which I I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Here's the key. Yet he will be a master of all 
of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And this is vanity. What is, what is, what is Solomon lamenting? He's lamenting that eventually he's going to be forgotten. That eventually they're going to not remember him or his work. You and I were created in the image of God. And one of the ways that we were created in the image of God is that we want to be recognized. We want to be known. We want to be seen. There's nothing wrong with recognition. The problem is when we plug our umbilical cords and draw our life from it. Because we want more and more of it. We don't want to just be special. We want to be the best at something. And we're fearful that we never will. Or if we do become the best at something, that we'll lose it. We are never fully satisfied with our level of recognition. Solomon says, it's not just recognition that I'll lament. I lament my legacy. Look at verses 20 and 21. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon is lamenting not just the fact that he's not recognized for his work, but that others will get what he has built and they will enjoy it and remember him no more. Can I do just a quick memory exercise with you? And you're thinking, I can't pass this test. But you can, at least the first one. If you could raise your hand, if you could name both your grandparents' full names, go ahead and raise your hand. If you know the full name, not John, but John, middle name, last name. And if it's your uh, 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 maiden name, if, it, if it's your grandmother, raise your hand high so I can see. All right? You can see, keeping them up, most of the room can, remain, can name their grandparents. Now, keep them up. Lower your hand if you can't name one of your great-grandparents' full name. All right, about half of you lost the room. We've only got to about a third of the room. Now lower your hand if you can't name one full name of your great-great-grandparents. All right, we've still got three or four. We're four generations out now. If you can name the full name of one of your great-great-great-grandparents, if you can't, lower your hand. There's one left. Here's my point. In four or five generations, no one is going to even remember your name. In a hundred years, no one in this room is going to be here, more than likely. But it's not just that we're not going to be here. It's that no one is even going to remember us. What's the lesson? The lesson for me, and I hope it's the same for you, quit taking yourself so seriously. Nobody else does. (laughs) 
Now, my wife will say at this point, this is my gift of discouragement showing. But I say I'm a realist. In four or five generations, nobody's going to even know your name, much less anything about your life or the legacy that you left. The psalmist agrees. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, As for man, his days are numbered like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, and then the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Likely, very few of us, if any of us in this room, will leave a lasting legacy. Obviously, the question is then why in the world would we plug our umbilical cord, draw our life from something that people are not even going to remember? That's what Solomon is lamenting. He also laments glory. And the difference between legacy and glory, legacy is what you leave behind. It's about the future. Glory is about what you have. It's the present. It's your meaning and purpose, your, your weight. And yet Solomon says four times, this also is vanity. And the word vanity simply means a feeling empty, a craving for glory or greatness. Did you know the average NFL football player, and many of you uh, today, this afternoon and tonight will watch, the average work life, the average stay in the NFL is four years. At the age of 26, most football players will have retired, at least the first time. An incredible, glorious profession. Literally, Thousands upon thousands, if not hundreds of thousands people will be cheering an NFL football player in the house of worship called a stadium only for four years. Now, we know all of the football players that make it past that, but do you realize out of the 1,500 football players that will play on any given Sunday, that 500 new ones will join them every year, and that means 500 will be leaving the profession every year. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you like a profession like that? And you say, yes, if it means the money and the recognition. But it's an incredible profession of glory, but it's also an incredible profession of life-crushing removal. Because once you turn 26, it is over for most NFL players. You know, I represent that reality a little bit myself. Part of the reflecting is to recognize that I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning. Sad to say. But I recognize that I'm standing where other men have stood before. Bill Mallow's been here. Dale Lender has been here. Dan Smith, he's still here, but he's been in this role. Cortez Cooper, but I also recognize that someone else will stand here after me. We are all like grass and the wind is blowing. That's the way it was for Saul, who had all that greatness of being king. But when David comes onto the scene, rather than enjoying that glory, he decides to try to, to eliminate his replacement instead of enjoy it. Bertrand Russell, who is a philosopher, said this, if you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon. 
But Napoleon envied Caesar, and Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. We need to remember that people named their dogs Alexander, Caesar, and Napoleon. But we name our children John and James and Peter and Jesus. But the last that Solomon says is this pursuit of perfection. This, he's lamenting that he's never satisfied in his work. He hates his work because it's never enough. He says in verse 18, I hated my toil, my work in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. Who, who knows what he'll do with what I have created, what I have earned, what I have worked for. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We were created and hardwired to be satisfied. That's why C.S. Lewis says that if you find yourself ever at a point that you are not satisfied in this world, it is because you were created for another. That's why he says that. We were hardwired for satisfaction. God was satisfied after creation. He said, it is good. And then he says, it rested. He rested. You and I find no rest in our work, and so we're never satisfied. I love Madonna because she says things that we think in our heart, but never say out loud. Madonna said this in a magazine about her work. She said, I I have an iron will, and all of my will has been always to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it with the fact that I am a special human being. Now, who would say that out loud? Then I get another stage, and then I think I'm just mere mediocre. Again, again, this is my experience, my driven. I'm driving life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. This is always pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody with a capital S, I still have to prove I am somebody. My struggle never ends, and it probably never will. Do you know what Madonna is saying there? Madonna is saying, I'm chasing the wind. And it's all vanity. How's it working out for you? How's it working out for me? We drive, we strive. We use our iron wheels. It's like raking leaves on a fall windy day. I hate that. I look outside, and if the trees are blowing, I'll push the leaves to another day, and there'll be more leaves. But I'm not going to rake them while there's gusting going on, because as soon as I finish a pile, it's blown about. It's frustrating. It's vexing. It's like chasing the wind. If you fail at work, you might get depressed. But if you succeed at work... you might become restless and, uh, because you're unsatisfied. I don't look to my work, you think, to give me those things. Okay, I grant you, you might not look to your work like the rest of us for recognition and legacy and glory and, and satisfaction. Maybe you don't. But I can guarantee you, you look somewhere for those things. It could be your children. It could be where you live. It could be in the church. It could be in really great things. 
pastors are not exempt from these feelings. Pastor Dan and the staff would agree with me that we want to be recognized for our work. We want to leave a legacy. It's one of the reasons we come. We want glory. And we want satisfaction that we've done a good job. But the truth is, if we make that where we get our lives, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. And so I ask the question, is there a solution for that? Is there, is there somewhere, is there some way that we can get those things? And the answer is yes. But you have to take that umbilical cord that's attached to your navel, that goes to your heart, that gets the blood, that gives you life, and you need to plug it into God rather than those things and your work. Augustine warned us. St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Solomon said the same thing here in verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You want knowledge and joy and wisdom? It's not in your work. It can only be found in God. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4.13. And this verse is maybe memorized by half the room, but taken completely out of its context almost every time. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I got news for you. You cannot do all things. I will not ever be able to play baseball with the Los Angeles Dodgers and be a pitcher. Paul says in the context of that verse, verse 12, I have learned the secret of contentment when I have plenty and when I have want. Do you hear what he's saying? I can do all things, including, but especially finding contentment when I have nothing. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is when, when I have nothing, I still have God because he is everything. Because if I don't have God, but I have everything, I've got vanity. I've got frustration. I've got annoyance. I've got worry. That's what Paul is saying. Do you know this letter, Philippians, is often called the letter of joy? Do you know where Paul is when he penned those words? He's in prison in chains. And he's saying, I can have joy. I can find contentment. Even while I'm chained. If you and I try to get heaven here, we will not find joy. And where we find joy is listening to our God. But how do you, how do you cultivate a practice of listening to the Holy Spirit? First, in the Word of God. He gave us this Word. It's been treasured by the people of God for thousands of years as a gift to us about Himself and what He has done for us. And every morning we have the opportunity to wake up and do one of two things. Hear the voice of the world 
or to hear the voice of God. I'm not saying that if you have 365 consecutive quiet times, devotions, you've got Christianity down. But I am saying without devotions, you will not hear the word of God. Before you listen to the world's voice, take time to listen to the voice of God. Secondly, is that we can listen to the, to the voice of God through the people of God. Now, I know that sounds, hey, wait a minute, that's everybody's interpretation. No, 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 God works through people and particularly his people. And that's why I, I think it's important for everyone to be in Renew Group in our church. It, it almost, what it means to be part of EP now is to be in a Renew Group so that you can listen. Not just so that you can part information and advice to everyone else, but so that you can hear the, the word of God, the voice of God through other people as they wrestle through what God is teaching them. And we call those Renew Groups. And so I encourage you, sign up. You've you, you got another week. And then we're off and running. But there is a third. And for the longest time, it's all Christians had. For 15, more than 1,500 years, all Christians had was this one thing. It hasn't been replaced by devotions. It hasn't been replaced by the people of God. It's just been augmented by those things. But the key thing we learned when we were in Germany and we were at the Gutenberg Press Museum was prior to that time, people didn't have Bibles. Gutenberg's Press printed Bibles for the very first time and he only printed 180 of them. And to buy one cost you your house. It was worth the value of a single house. In DC, they've got one of the cheapest Gutenberg Bibles in the Smithsonian. And it cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million. Nobody could afford them. So where did they go to hear the word of God? In the worship of God. What we do here on Sunday morning matters. And therefore, we are not to neglect it. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Do not neglect. You're assembling together as the habit of some. Whatever you do, every Sunday, not because someone is keeping roll, which I am, because you sit in the same seats every Sunday, (laughs) but simply because you want to hear the voice of God, not the preacher, but the voice of God in what he's preaching. And you need that like you need the blood through that umbilical cord. One of the things the church does that you can't get anywhere else is this table. The bread and the cup in front of us this morning represents all that we have been chasing after, all the glory, all the legacy, all the recognition, all the perfection, and says, I am not going to attach myself to those things. And the Lord's Supper is going to be about attaching your umbilical cord to God and letting him bring the lifeblood of his word and spirit into your life. Don't you see? One of the things that the Lord's Supper teaches us is this. 
I have already given you all of those things and freely. You want recognition? Do you know what God says of you? You are my special possession, my treasure, my precious. He's already said that. And if the greatest being in the cosmos says that about you, who cares what people on earth say about you? The legacy? Remember, that's about the future? Galatians says, I mean, Galatians, Ephesians says that you're going to be part of a train that is going to walk in front of the whole cosmos because you are part of the people of God. Do you get that? That everybody, including angels, Ephesians also says you're the stars in the heavens that the angels long to look at, at the glory. You are the laser light show of the cosmos for eternity, of the glory of God. (laughs) You want perfection? As you sit right where you are right now in Christ, you are as perfect as you will ever be. When God sees you, he sees perfection. You say, but I don't feel it. Okay. Sometimes our feelings don't match the reality. You know that's to be true. But one day your feelings will finally catch up with reality. It's called glorification. One day, the one who justified you He's going to sanctify you. And when he's done sanctifying you, he's going to glorify you. And your feelings are going to finally catch up with reality. What more could he give us? On this Labor Day weekend, tomorrow's Labor Day, what are you going to think about? Hot dogs and hamburgers? No. Work? No. You're going to think about not your work, but his work on your behalf, on our behalf. And enter his rest today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible picture of our work, that it is important. We're we're created in your image to work, but we don't get our life from that. We don't get our recognition and our glory, our legacy, our perfection. We only get that from Jesus. He's the finished work for us. He's not merely our example. He did it all for us in our place. And may we rest this Labor Day, in that reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.